You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast. Welcome to Dan Kennedy's Midas Touch Marketing, and Dan Kennedy definitely does have the Midas Touch with marketing. In fact, Entrepreneur Magazine says Dan has at least 101 money-making ideas for any business owner. You'll find more than that in these Midas Touch audio cassettes. Of course, not all the strategies and suggestions in these cassettes will apply perfectly to your particular business or sales career. It is Mr. Kennedy's intention that you will pick and choose, much like walking through a cafeteria line. You will find more than enough to apply directly, immediately, and profitably. Beyond that direct application, Mr. Kennedy also hopes that these sessions will heighten your tendency to think marketing so that you, too, get the Midas Touch. On this tape, we're going to talk about one of the most exciting marketing strategies of all, stimulating word-of-mouth advertising. Word-of-mouth advertising is the most powerful, effective type of advertising there is, but it's the only kind you can't just buy by the page or by the minute. It has to be created, stimulated, and nurtured with truly creative techniques. Most businesses take whatever word-of-mouth advertising they get, but I'm here to tell you that you can exert a considerable degree of control over this type of advertising and marketing. The reason that word-of-mouth advertising is so valuable is simple. Nothing you can ever say about you, no matter how well you say it, can have as much impact and credibility as something a disinterested third party says about you. Also, there are some things you simply can't say graciously about yourself that others can say. Artificial word-of-mouth advertising is still the most effective form of TV commercial. It's called slice of life, and you're very familiar with it. It shows a scene with one ordinary person telling a friend or associate how good a product is. Laundry soap, personal computers, and hundreds of other products and services are still sold this way. Far better, though, is real word-of-mouth advertising, and there is a single basic secret to stimulating a high rate of word-of-mouth advertising. The secret comes from the Disney companies, where it is taught as find ways to do what you do so well and so uniquely that your customers cannot resist telling lots of other people about you. At the Disney parks, this principle is implemented in the forms of cleanliness and authenticity. When first-time visitors to Disneyland and Disney World are surveyed and ask what sticks in their mind most about their visit, the overwhelming number one answer is the cleanliness of the parks. The number two answer is the authenticity of the environments. Disney marketing pros then understand how this translates into real life. Harry and Marge go back to Dubuque and tell their friends, you can't believe how clean the parks were. Then four more families from Dubuque pile money into motorhomes and bring the money to the mouse. Because they understand this, the Disney people think of park cleanliness as marketing, not just maintenance. They use this to stimulate referrals. Any business can also find ways to stimulate referrals, to stimulate word-of-mouth advertising, often by doing things that should be done anyway. In a retail-type business, excellence and creativity in the store environment and in customer service are most likely to stimulate referrals. I know a dentist, for example, who ten times this practice in just 24 months without increasing his external ad budget by even a dollar. He identified 700 different things to change in the office environment and in patient communications, and those changes were responsible for developing a very high level of word-of-mouth advertising. Now, this brings up a vitally important theme that should be behind all your marketing efforts. Little things mean a lot. Think of it this way. If you throw one little metal BB at a window, you probably won't shatter the glass. But if you solder a couple hundred of those little BBs together into a ball, that'll shatter the window. When working to build and improve a business, don't waste a lot of time looking for the one big magic marketing strategy 
that will make all the difference in the world. Instead, find a lot of little things that can be improved. Added together, little things have big impact. Another way to stimulate referrals, if you have direct contact with your customers, is by staging events where loyal customers can and are motivated to bring their friends to you. A nightclub has an annual anniversary party with huge tents in the parking lot, free food, and free entertainment. Closed to the public, but open to their customers and guests invited by the customers. A chiropractor I know hosts a big Christmas party each year with a buffet and a dance band open to all of his patients and any family members or friends they wish to bring. Another doctor uses the same idea with a July barbecue held in his own big backyard each year. Still another way to stimulate referrals is to simply ask for them. Many business owners and executives, professionals, and even salespeople have all sorts of mental hang-ups about asking for referrals. However, most of those hang-ups are invalid, and I find that those who ask get. Now here's a secret about customers or clients who refer that can be worth a great deal of money to you. Understand that the person who refers once can and will refer many more people many more times if motivated to do so. Once a customer or client has referred someone to your business, then that source of referrals should be worked like the gold mine that it is. You should know that massive research by major two-consumer direct sales companies and organizations indicates that the average person has an immediate circle of influence of 52. 52 other people. The typical executive, for example, knows about 50 other people at a similar executive level in his own or closely related industries. This number tells you that each customer or client who comes through your business could bring you as many as 50 other customers or clients. You should also know that research by the American Management Association indicates that the average satisfied customer only tells three other people about the satisfactory experience. Moving that person from telling three to telling 50 does require some definite action on your part. That action needs to focus on the giving of recognition and appreciation. When a satisfied customer sends someone to you, the sender should immediately receive some recognition and appreciation, possibly a quick thank you note or telephone call at bare minimum. That should happen right away. Subsequently, some type of thank you gift is usually appropriate and effective. We send steaks, books, clocks, calculators, small electronic items, knife sets, all sorts of things. I recommend gifts that you do not ordinarily sell and a different gift each time the person refers. You will really be amazed at the positive results from this kind of action. You'd also be surprised, incidentally, at the negative results of not doing this. The client who refers once and fails to get recognition and appreciation will probably never say anything to you, but to himself and often to a friend or associate, he does say, Can you believe it? I sent that guy a customer and never got so much as a thank you. And then he never refers again. Again, it's interesting to note that a basic success principle, often discussed in personal development context, is also a marketing strategy. It's called the attitude of gratitude. If you want to even more directly stimulate referrals from your customers or clients, you might want to consider the second-party gift certificate idea. Here's how this works. You're a satisfied, regular customer of a clothing store. The owner of the store says to you, John, as you know, most of our customers come as referrals from other customers. And we appreciate that and try to encourage it. This month, we're doing something interesting that you might want to help us with and be able to do a favor for your friends, too. The store owner then gives you a $10 gift certificate, negotiable only by a second party that you, the customer, address it to and sign it over to. 
This idea works extremely well for just about any kind of retail business, service business, home products business, restaurants, stores, beauty parlors, carpet cleaning companies, and so on. If you use this idea, you'll again want to follow it up with recognition and appreciation to the customer who does pass along a coupon that is ultimately redeemed by a new customer. A variation of word-of-mouth advertising is what I call testimonial marketing. The best way to explain it is with some examples. The best automobile salesman I've ever met is Bill Glazner with Sanderson Ford right here in Phoenix. This fellow is a true professional in every sense of the word. He's knowledgeable, competent, a skilled listener, is able to exert pressure without being offensive, and has many other great sales skills. But his most impressive attribute is mastery of testimonial marketing. When you go in and sit down in his office, you'll find a typical car salesman's cubicle, a little desk, a couple side chairs, a rather tacky tile floor, just what you'd expect. But the walls in Bill's office are covered, top to bottom, side to side, with instant snapshots of Bill's customers standing next to their new cars. Each snapshot shows the happy customer next to or in front of his or her new automobile. As you look at the hundreds of these photos on his walls, you can't help but notice two things. First, you'll probably see someone you know or know of. Second, the photos are dated, and you'll see some customers displayed several different times, years apart, pictured next to their new 1960 car, then again next to their new 1965 car, again next to their new 1970 car, and again next to their new 1980 car. These pictures are worth thousands of words. The inevitable reactions are, all these people can't be wrong, and these people wouldn't keep coming back if they weren't being treated well. I've seen this same idea taught and demonstrated by Ira Hayes, former top cash register salesman for NCR and today a superb motivational speaker. Ira carried huge fold-out sheets of pictures of happy customers next to their new cash registers when he made a sales call on a store owner. I've also taught this to thousands of doctors and know that those who use it get great results. In their waiting rooms, you'll find giant scrapbooks filled with photos of their happy, healthy patients. Self-made multimillionaire W. Clement Stone used this exact tactic to build a huge insurance sales organization from scratch, beginning in the Great Economic Depression. His reps then, and still today, enter a business and start selling by flipping through page after page after page of lists of other area business people who bought their insurance programs. In my business, speaking and consulting, Testimonial letters and comments from satisfied clients are the most valuable selling tools possible. You need to carefully consider how you can collect testimonial type evidence of customer satisfaction and then use that evidence to attract and motivate other customers. There are two specific applications of this idea I'd suggest you think about. Number one, geographic target marketing. And number two, customer category target marketing. Let's use a print shop as an example of both types of testimonial marketing. Our print shop happens to have two architect firms as loyal, regular, satisfied customers. Here would be the astute extension marketing strategy. Prepare a mailing to all the other architect firms in the area, showing and telling that we have these architects as satisfied customers. The mailing might include pictures of those architects, comments from them, and a list of the types of work being done for them. That would be target marketing by customer type. One architect leads to another. My associate, Joel Beck, teaches salespeople about this process and about referrals with this analogy. How do ducks go to water? One behind the other. Now let's say our print shop also has several loyal, regular, satisfied customers with stores and offices in the same complex, say the Fifth Street Center 
An astute marketing strategy would be to contact all the other tenants of the Fifth Street Center and show and tell about the satisfied customers that we have there. Your prospective customers and clients can best judge you and can be motivated to judge you by the customers you already have. Most businesses use this third-party influence factor far less and far less effectively than they could and should. I urge you to constantly look for ways that you can utilize the influence of your present customers to attract additional customers. An extension of this to personal selling, by the way, is that stories sell, facts only tell. If you are involved in person-to-person -person or group selling situations, you'll improve your closing effectiveness by telling more third-party stories. Which is more effective? Am I telling you that 4,617 businesses have purchased this program, which is a fact, or telling you a true story about Bob Smith in Boston, who is in the same business as you are, who bought this program and doubled his business in 90 days by implementing the word-of-mouth advertising system? Most people will be moved more by the story than the fact. Stories sell, facts tell. This is just one more argument, incidentally, in favor of valuing your customer and staying close to the customer. By knowing your customers, you gain stories and testimonials that are useful in selling successfully to others. Stimulating word-of-mouth advertising, stimulating referrals, and using testimonials effectively are exciting and effective marketing strategies. In most cases, you have opportunities to use these strategies with very small cost compared to most other marketing methods. I personally know of many businesses in many different fields that have affected dynamic, dramatic increases in sales using these strategies. One of the big dangers in attracting new business is spending so much in the pursuit that you win the game and still lose money. What I call lazy passive advertising and marketing, like renting billboards and running ads, is expensive. It's important to balance the necessary but expensive advertising you do with much lower cost active marketing using these strategies. There is even one more virtue to attracting new business from referrals and the use of testimonials. The referred customer is most likely to become a source of more referrals. He got there as a result of a referral, so he's already been conditioned to refer. The client who is motivated to do business with you as a result of others' testimonials is most likely to give you a testimonial letter or comment you can use. The more you use these strategies, the more profitable your business will be. I am not a great fan of the United States Postal Service. Overall, there's no doubt in my mind that it is a poorly managed, inefficient, financially troubled operation, sadly in need of reform. But in spite of all its faults, that system gives you a powerful and effective sales force at a bargain price. Using the postman as your salesman via direct mail advertising is a great bargain and one of the most effective marketing strategies available to most businesses. Direct mail gives the marketer tremendous control over the sales process. You can do direct mail marketing cost-effectively in relatively small quantities. You control who gets your advertising and who does not. You can control to a great degree when they get it. You can test and evaluate a promotion very inexpensively before committing a big budget. There really is no other media that gives you all of these advantages for the delivery price of a postage stamp. There have been many studies done to determine the average cost of sending a rep out to make a personal sales call getting an ordinary business letter done and out of an office, or making a telemarketing call. My observation is that the bigger the company, the higher the cost. But even in well-run, cost-efficient situations, these marketing methods can easily cost from $10 to $100 or more per prospect contacted. At that cost, they are not the way to prospect for new business. Advertising in newspapers and magazines, radio, TV, and cable TV 
also has a cost factor problem, mammoth waste. When you buy this type of advertising, you're paying for distribution outside your market area, copies that never reach readers, and circulation that has no possible interest in what you have to offer. Most businesses can benefit tremendously from the more controlled, targeted process of direct mail advertising. On this side of this cassette, I want to give you some insight into the three aspects of success in direct mail advertising and introduce you to the two most common, most successful formats you can use in direct mail advertising. The first of three stepping stones to a successful direct mail campaign is acquisition or development of the right list. Since the main virtue of direct mail is targeting to specific prospects, it makes sense that the selection of those prospects will have a great deal to do with the success of the whole process. Most experts agree that list selection has a 30% to 50% impact on the overall effectiveness of direct mail. In selecting a mailing list, you want to target people most likely to have an existent interest in what you have to offer, as well as some things in common with your present good customers. These commonalities might be found in age, sex, occupation, income level, neighborhood or geographic area, credit card ownership, family size, magazines subscribed to, or any number of other demographics. These factors are called demographics, and the professional sources you might rent mailing lists from can be incredibly sophisticated in finding or compiling a mailing list of people who conform to your set of desired demographics. In business-to-business -business marketing, the same sophistication is available. List of companies can be obtained by size, sales volume, asset value, number of employees, type of business, geographic area, magazines subscribed to, credit rating, and other factors. Lists of executives, owners, sales managers, personnel managers, purchasing agents, stockholders, or secretaries are also readily available. List selection can be as simple or sophisticated as you need or want to make it. The owner of an upper-class restaurant might want to obtain a mailing list of homeowners within a 50-mile radius of his restaurant who have at least one bank credit card. A private aircraft manufacturer might want a list of corporate officers and business owners with net worths in excess of a half million dollars all across the country. As a rule, the more demographic factors you can use in controlling the list, the costlier the list. To a great degree, extra money spent in narrowing down the list to fit your desired factors is money well spent. To find mailing lists, you can locate list brokers and sources in your own area by looking in the yellow pages under such categories as mailing lists, mailing services, and advertising consultants. There are also many national sources. For a thorough education in the kind of services and lists available, go to the main public library in your area and review a copy of a directory called SRDS, Standard Rate and Data Service. Also, a good trade magazine to look at is Direct Marketing. We also have a preferred list supplier that we use frequently, Best Mailing Lists in New York City. You can call them toll-free by dialing 1-800-NYC-BEST. Small business people should also compile their own mailing lists. For one thing, you should maintain an up-to-date mailing list of all your customers and clients. Direct mail to this list can stimulate additional business, introduce new products and services, or promote sales or special offers. You can also build prospect lists of your own many different ways. If people call your business for information, your staff should be trained to get the caller's name and address for the mailing list. If you exhibit at trade or consumer shows, you might use a free prize drawing or some similar method to obtain all the show attendees' names and addresses.
You can also compile your own lists from telephone directories, chamber of commerce directories, association directories, and other similar sources. The list or lists selection is the starting point of the direct mail marketing process. Then second comes the development of a matching offer. The offer you make in a direct mail package needs to be carefully thought out and matched as closely as possible to the interests, needs, and motivations of the list. And as a general rule of thumb, the more specifically matched the offer and list are, the higher the response rate. Here are two simple examples to help you understand this idea. Example one, John's Sporting Goods store mails a brochure about his upcoming sale on skiing and hiking equipment to every resident in his store's neighborhood. His offer may be great, 25% to 50% discounts, a free gift for everyone who comes in, but his response will still probably be very low because of a high waste factor in his mailing. Let's say John mailed 10,000 brochures. As few as 15 to 25 people may come in, a response rate of only one-half of 1% 1 or slightly worse. But that's deceptive because of the waste factor. Of the 10,000 residents mailed, only 1,000 of them may be interested in skiing or hiking. If that's true and 15 people come in, that may represent 1.5% response rate, which is usually acceptable. Example 2. John's Sporting Goods Store mails the exact same offer as in Example 1, but he only mails 1,000 brochures to a list of people in his store's neighborhood who are subscribers to skiing, or hiking, or field and stream magazine. In example two, John's list acquisition cost will be much higher than in example one. In example one, the resident list may cost only $35 to $40 per thousand names, $350 to $400 for the 10,000 names. In example two, the list may cost $150 or even $200 for just the thousand names. And in example two, the cost of printing the brochures will go up dramatically per unit. In example one, the 10,000 brochures may cost only a nickel each, $500 total. In example two, the 1,000 brochures may cost 20 cents each, $200 total. However, in example two, John saves almost $2,000 in postage by culling the waste factor out of his mailing. Overall, he spends about $2,500 less with the sophisticated approach in example two and gets the same results as he would with the costlier, less sophisticated example one. Most small businesses, and many big businesses, waste substantial sums of money by taking the less sophisticated, easier approach. If the typical small business, like John's Sporting Goods Store, conducts just four direct mail campaigns a year, and there's a $2,500 differential available each time, that's $10,000 a year that can be wasted or saved. $10,000 is a lot of money to a small business. Part of the magic of the sophisticated approach is the list to offer match. But to be successful, you must also develop a very good, attractive offer. Here are the ingredients that can be used in most offers. Number one, something new, new products, new services, new prices. Number two, a sale or specially discounted prices. Number three, a bonus or premium for purchasing or even just for coming in. Number four, a gift for responding. Number five, a time limit on the offer to stimulate prompt response. And the best offer includes all five of these ingredients. The third stepping stone to direct mail success is the mailing piece itself. One is the list, two is the offer, now three is what we might call the packaging or the presentation of the offer. In mailing development, 
you will basically deal with copy, graphics, and format. I want you to understand that it is not necessary or even necessarily advisable for you to engage the expensive services of graphic designers or ad agencies to create your direct mail pieces. If you will make the format decision yourself, write the copy yourself, and provide some graphic components yourself, all of which I'll help you with during the next few minutes, then you can have your piece prepared by a small storefront printer and his typesetter. An ad agency or graphic designer may charge you several hundred to a thousand dollars just to design a simple direct mail piece. Most small and medium-sized businesses do not need to incur such costs. Let's talk first about format. There are two commonly used formats that will serve most of your needs. One is called the solo piece. This is a single sheet printed on both sides and half-folded or folded in thirds to self-mail without an envelope. This is the most commonly used format by small business and the least expensive. If you watch your own incoming mail a little more closely for the next few days, you'll receive several such mail pieces and can get an idea of the different things that can be done within the solo format. Another solo format that is even simpler and less costly is a postcard or oversized postcard. This can be a very cost-effective way of communicating with your established customer list. The other format is a more complex, sophisticated, multiple-piece mailing in an envelope. This is the kind used by Publishers Clearinghouse and the Reader's Digest sweepstakes, as well as many other direct mail marketers. Again, watch your incoming mail for the next few days, and you'll be able to collect some samples of this type of piece. Usually, this package is made up of, number one, a cover letter, number two, a brochure or flyer presenting the main offer. Number three, a separate response device, a coupon to bring into the store or an order form to mail back. And number four, some extra sales piece, possibly a page of testimonials from satisfied customers or a flyer on the premium or bonus gift. The theory behind this type of mailing is that the odds of something catching the reader's interest are increased proportionately by the number of loose pieces. Your choice of formats can be governed by how much space you need to tell your story, cost and budget factors, who you're mailing to, and the dollar value of the response. You then have to write the copy that will present your offer and tell your story. I've written all of my own advertising copies since the 1970s and have never had any formal education in advertising. I'm self-taught through studying the many excellent how-to books readily available and through practice. This is a very valuable skill, and I urge most business people and entrepreneurs to develop the ability to write good advertising copy. There are two main reasons for this. First, it's very costly to have your advertising materials written by a good professional copywriter or consultant. To write the copy for a multi-piece direct mail package for a client, I charge between $3,000 and $5,000, and my fees are typically lower than most other well-qualified consultants in this field. Second, no matter how much you pay to get the very best outside help, no one can ever have the same feel for your business and your clientele that you do. On the other side of this cassette, we'll go through some specific ideas and guidelines that will help you write effective advertising copy. Format, copy, and graphic components. A graphic component can be a cartoon, a drawing, a photograph, a border, a keyword, and a dramatic typeface. Most needs for such things can be filled very inexpensively with what is commonly called clip art in the advertising business. You can buy books of copyright-free clip art in art supply stores and by mail from several different companies. An expenditure of ten or twenty dollars will get you hundreds of pieces of usable art. You can also build your own collection of clip art over a period of time 
by cutting clean black and white artwork out of magazines, catalogs, and other companies' advertising that you receive, and filing it by category. As long as the art does not have a registered or copyright indicia next to it, you're free to take it and use it. Setting up such files and making this a habit can save you a great deal of money over the years. There's one last tip I want to give you about using direct mail to promote your business. A real secret to direct mail success is repetition. When you are selecting or compiling a list of prospective customers to mail to, you should think in terms of mailing offers and information to that same list three to five times during a 12-month period, not just once. Properly used, direct mail can be one of the most effective and cost-efficient marketing strategies you'll ever find for your business. Let's talk about the basics of effective in-print advertising and writing effective advertising copy. The first critically important key is the development of effective headlines. The headline is the most important component part of any type of in-print advertising. It must work or nothing else matters. Next in importance are the subheads that are used to break up long blocks of copy. Next are photo captions. Photo captions are marvelous opportunities to make persuasive arguments. People are drawn to pictures and often read the captions beneath the pictures before reading just about anything else. The same basic guidelines apply to headlines, subheads, and photo captions. First, the headline should promise a positive benefit or ask a provocative question or both. Second, it should telegraph its message in 12 words or less. Third, it should stand alone. That means it should make a complete statement by itself. I'll give you a great example to compare all of your headlines to that comes from the National Enquirer. This is a headline of a small mail order ad that has been running continuously in the Enquirer since before I was alive, a great indication that it works. Here's the headline, Corn's Gone in Five Days or Money Back. This is a great headline. In just eight words, it clearly promises a benefit, Corn's Gone. It strengthens the promised benefit with a specific time frame, in five days, and it further strengthens the benefit with a guarantee, or money back. Your headlines, subheads, and photo captions need to be equally strong. If your headline does its job, it will grab the attention of the reader and motivate him to read more of your offer. The headline will bring the reader into the copy. Now, here are 14 tips to make sure that your advertising copy works. Number one, translate features into benefits. Don't just give information and assume that the reader will interpret. Example, front-wheel drive is a product feature on an automobile. In advertising that car, it would be a great mistake just to say that and assume that the reader knows why front-wheel drive is a desirable feature. The advertising has to go on to explain the benefits of front-wheel drive, safety, improved cornering, improved braking, better mileage, and so on. Number two, Write from the you perspective, not the I-we perspective. Say, you will benefit greatly from the extraordinary durability. Don't say, we build the most durable. Number three, communicate credibility. Credibility can be demonstrated with length of time in business, the size of your company, the number of customers served, testimonials from satisfied customers, your membership and influential associations, guarantees and warranties, and all of these things combined. Number four, you can use dramatic license. You should not deceive or misrepresent anything, but you can dramatize it. Here's an example you're familiar with. Remington's president says in the commercials, 
I like this Remington shaver so much that I bought the company. Well, that's silly. That man is a shrewd, astute, experienced business person. And I assure you that his acquisition of Remington was based on careful analysis of many different factors, only including the quality of the product. But his statement is at least partly true and is a dramatic way of talking about product quality. That's dramatic license. Number five, remember that stories sell, facts only tell. Whenever you can use first-person stories, third-party stories about customers, and antidotes to make key selling points, do so. Stories sell, facts only tell. Number six, don't be afraid of long copy. Ad copy should be long enough to tell your story effectively and persuasively. Number seven, utilize the writing technique of double readership path. This is really quite simple, but extremely important. The idea is to understand and reach both ends of the spectrum of consumer behavior, analytical behavior versus impulsive behavior. The analytical person will read lengthy copy and is interested in as much information as possible. The impulsive individual lacks the patience to read lots of copy and wants to get the message quickly. When you organize your copy and format, you should communicate the important points of your message in only the headlines, subheads, photo captions, and response device so the impulsive person can quickly skim, still get the message, and take positive action. Number eight, keep your copy lean, not necessarily short. Watch out for wordiness that distracts from the sales message. If a word or phrase does not advance the sales process, why is it there? Most copywriters like to edit their rough drafts after a day or two cooling off period. You may want to use this same approach. Number nine, keep your sentences and paragraphs short. Complex sentence structure or long paragraphs are intimidating and confusing to many people. Don't make the common mistake of overestimating the intelligence and sophistication of your readers. Number 10. You must create a sense of urgency. This can be done with discounts or bonus offers that expire within a certain time period or with extra incentives for fast response. Number 11. It's okay to compare apples to oranges. Example. This cassette program costs only $79. You might easily pay $300, $400, or even $500 to obtain the same information by attending a seminar. And $79 is such a small sum, you might spend that much or more on a nice dinner for you and your wife in a fancy restaurant. Number 12. Internal repetition is an important and beneficial technique. In a given direct mail piece, it's wise to make the same several main points several different times, several different ways. Number 13. Use the power of the P.S. Most direct mail copywriting pros agree that many people skip down to the P.S. on a letter and read that first. You can use this to your advantage two ways. One, be sure that your letter has a P.S. And two, make a powerful, interesting, persuasive statement in the P.S. This is a good place to present the bonus offer, for example. And number 14, become a student of advertising copy. Study all the direct mail advertising that you receive carefully and collect those pieces that you find particularly persuasive. Over a period of time, you'll begin identifying common ingredients in those pieces that you can copy in your own work. Headlines, subheads, and photo captions. The critical attention-getting and interest-building components of in-print advertising, supported by good, effective copy. That's two-thirds of the success formula. The third part is the call to action in the form of a response device. In person-to-person -person professional selling, 
One of the most common failings in salespeople is the fear of closing the sale, the reluctance to ask for the order. Master sales trainer Zig Ziglar says that asking for the order is what separates the poorly paid professional visitor from the kingly compensated professional salesperson. Just as closing the sale is a vital skill in face-to-face -face marketing, asking for the desired action clearly is a vital skill in advertising. Incidentally, experience in effectively closing sales in person is a valuable asset in creating effective advertising. The same techniques, words, phrases, and ideas used in personal selling can be used in print selling. A strong, direct call to action in direct mail is vital. Tell the reader exactly what you want them to do, how to do it, and when to do it. If response to your offer is in any way complicated, you may want to number the instructions, one, two, three. The call to action may appear in several places in the typical direct mail package, such as the letter, the main brochure, and most importantly, in the response device. A response device is the coupon to be redeemed, the order form, or the reply card. Whatever your response device is, it should restate the basic offer and bonus and present the call to action. You can learn to use these techniques to develop effective direct mail marketing materials for your businesses, products, and services. On this cassette, I'll run through a little checklist of consistently successful marketing strategies that apply to virtually any business. These seven strategies can help you stimulate new business, increase business from existing customers, and build repeat business. You may not be able to use all of them in your business, but you can certainly use some of them. One is a system of frequent buyer rewards. Today, all major airlines and many hotel chains are using this technique to capture repeat business from their clientele. Here in Phoenix, the White Guys car washers use this same idea. They issue each customer a little plastic punch card. After the customer pays for a certain number of washes recorded on the card, he can then redeem the card for a free wash. The idea of the frequent buyer type incentive is to encourage the customer to return to your business rather than spreading his business around. In order to make this type of incentive even more effective, you can tie it to an expiration date so that the points have to be accumulated and redeemed within a certain time period. Number two, discounting is probably the most commonly used marketing strategy in business. Just about every business in America uses discounts at various times in various ways. One word of caution about discounting, if it's overused, it loses its effectiveness. The retail furniture industry, for example, is finding that special this weekend only sale type advertising is losing its effectiveness the more they use it. Also, artificial discounting is very dangerous in the long run. The American automobile industry did itself great, apparently permanent damage with artificial discounting, so that today everybody knows that the sticker price on a car is meaningless and every price is negotiable. It's important to have a logical reason tied to a discount opportunity. Otherwise, you are essentially admitting that your regular prices are excessive. Inventory overstock, an anniversary, a holiday celebration, an introductory offer for new customers, a special offer on a new product or service, these are all examples of logical, acceptable reasons for discounts. Three, the use of premiums. A premium offer essentially says, buy this, get this free. This is an extremely effective marketing strategy suitable for many different types of businesses. One of the most interesting uses of premiums that I've seen develop as a trend in recent years is the use of premiums attractive to individuals 
tied to business products and services, such as a free color TV or VCR with the purchase of a certain amount of office supplies. In effect, this type of offer lets the business customer spend tax-deductible business dollars for supplies and receive free and tax-free a gift he will use personally in his home. Four, packaging of different products or services together. This is a marketing strategy usually used to increase the average purchase size in a business. Five is the sale of prepay agreements. You're familiar with this in the health spa and exercise salon business. You pay, say, $395 for a membership that entitles you to use the facilities X number of times or for X length of time, rather than paying as you go per visit. The same idea is applicable to many different businesses, and it even presents an interesting opportunity for the small business person to raise operating capital. With this technique, operating capital can actually be raised from customers by collecting in advance for future business. Let's take a restaurant, for example. The restaurant owner could sell a membership card good for 25 dinners, anything on the menu, for $249. If purchased onesie-twosie, the average dinner might be $11.95 or $12.95, costing the customer over $300. So by purchasing the card in advance, the customer saves about $50, can just sign his check and not have to pay as he goes, and maybe guaranteed reservations with short notice or get some other perk as well. The restaurant owner who sells 50 of these memberships collects over $12,000 in a hurry. Six, the acceptance of major credit cards. Every business should accept MasterCard, Visa, American Express, Diners Club, and now the new Discovery Card. Of course, retail stores and restaurants almost always honor these cards, but just about any business can. I've taught doctors, lawyers, hairstylists, and other professionals to accept these cards and use them to increase their business implement price increases with less client resistance, and reduce collection problems. This is really a simple thought process. The easier you make it for the customer to buy, and the more payment options you offer the customer, the better. Seven, regular mailings to past and present customers or clients. I think the single most effective marketing strategy that any business can use to build customer loyalty, to retain customers, and to stimulate more frequent purchasing by customers is the publication and distribution of a monthly newsletter. This is an extremely powerful, cost-effective marketing method. When you keep in touch with your clientele with your own newsletter, you do all of these valuable things. Number one, you create a habit on the part of your customers. They expect to receive your newsletter, and they get in the habit of reading it. Number two, you stay on the top of the consciousness in your customers' minds. Number three, you can pass along useful information and ideas that your customers appreciate. Number four, you can continue to demonstrate your expertise in your field. Number five, you can stimulate word-of-mouth advertising. And number six, you can advertise sales, special offers, new products, new services, new locations, and so on in your own publication. Accountants, attorneys, dentists, chiropractors, medical doctors, these professionals have learned how effective this idea is, and many of these professionals put out their own newsletters on a regular basis. But this exact same idea could be used by many different types of businesses. The beauty parlor could put out a newsletter on skin care, beauty, and fashion tips. The restaurant could put out a newsletter on local entertainment, recipes, and shopping tips. The office equipment company could put out a newsletter on management and efficiency tips. 
These seven simple marketing strategies can be creatively used many different ways. You might want to use them as sort of an idea stimulant checklist for regularly scheduled brainstorming sessions with your associates. Many businesses benefit from a regularly scheduled once-a-month brainstorming and planning session to develop new marketing strategies for the coming month. This is an extension of an important business success idea, the Mastermind Group. If you are unfamiliar with this idea, you should consult the classic success book by Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich. You may be able to use several of these strategies at one time in a given business. I believe it's best to use these strategies in the development of short-term promotional campaigns. When you frequently introduce new, different promotions and special offers, you keep the attention and interest of your customers, and you keep your own interest in your business high. You may also want to schedule certain promotional campaigns to immediately precede and coincide with seasonal slumps that occur in your business. More often than not, the reason business is slow at a particular time of year is mostly due to management's acceptance of it being slow. Confucius said, dig the well before you thirst. You can usually head off an oncoming slump with effective promotion and marketing strategies. Another excellent source of more promotion ideas is the book, How to Get Big Results from a Small Advertising Budget, by Cynthia Smith, available in paperback in most bookstores. I also edit and publish a newsletter, The Marketing Ideas Letter, designed to bring business owners and advertising agencies and consultants a fresh supply of good marketing and promotion ideas all year long. Most businesses have unfulfilled potential to do more business more frequently with existing customers, and this can be a tremendous source of increased profitability. Hopefully, these ideas will help you tap that potential. Salespeople. If you employ salespeople or will in the future, you've got sales management problems. Although I can't even begin to provide a full analysis of the solutions to sales management problems in a single cassette, there are several fundamental important things we can discuss that will help you have more productive relationships with your salespeople, your distributors, or your franchisees. First, you should remember that salespeople are people. There are any number of problems that they can have at various times that will negatively affect their performance and productivity. Fears and insecurities, laziness, depression, personal and family problems, financial problems, health problems, automobile problems, all these things become factors affecting your business when you market through salespeople. This is probably one of the reasons for the validity of the 80-20 principle in sales organizations. This principle says that 80% of the sales come from 20% of the reps, and 80% of the problems come from 20% of the reps. As long as it's not the same 20%, you're in good shape, and it rarely is. In managing salespeople, you'll actually be dealing with three distinctly different situations. One, coaching the willing salesperson to peak performance. Two, trying to motivate the mediocre performer, and three, frequently cutting out and replacing the poor performers. Let's take the poor performer first. Most managers spend way too much time on the poor performer and too little time with their high performers. And most managers postpone cutting the inadequate performer much longer than they should. Once an individual has demonstrated his unwillingness or inability to perform effectively in your business, you do no one any favors by letting him hang on. In fact, firing this person is the best thing you can do for him. He'll probably be more relieved than anything else and will now be freed to find an employment situation that is somehow better matched to his personality. It's also the best thing you can do for your own sanity as well as for the organization. 
a firing now and then in an organization is a vivid reminder that unsatisfactory performance will not be tolerated. I have a poster hidden in one of my offices that says, you should never try to teach a pig to sing. It only annoys the pig, and you get covered with mud in the attempt. The point is, is that there are some people burdened with such a combination of negative attitudes and experiences that turning them into winners is much more trouble than it's worth. A lot of the manager's time is consumed by the mediocre performers, those doing just enough to give you hope, but not enough to warrant celebration. And then there are the high performers, producing about 80% of the positive results, who are mostly ignored by management. However, if you're looking for a prompt increase in sales, a good way to get it is to divert some attention from the mediocre group to the high-performance group. It's much easier to coach a successful person to even better performance than to get a mediocre performer to begin succeeding. The bottom line, though, is that the only real motivation is self-motivation. You cannot take control of someone else's thinking, motivate them, and keep them motivated purely through your external influence. The motivation that helps a sales professional achieve peak performance comes mostly from within. As a manager or a business owner, you should concentrate on providing an environment and an opportunity where a person can develop that self-motivation and a set of good business tools for the motivated performer's use. Accountability is also important. You need to obtain detailed, frequent reporting from your salespeople that you can analyze to identify strengths and weaknesses in their performance, prospects or types of prospects being neglected, customer service problems, and other situations that you can take action to prevent or correct. Management's toughest and most important job is the collection of accurate information about what's actually going on out there on the sales battlefield. Some sales managers like to use special contests and incentive programs to motivate and reward their salespeople. I think the overall results of such programs are disappointing to management more often than not and believe I've identified one common error in structuring these programs. Many contests and incentives base the winning on end results sales volume, number of accounts, etc. However, for a contest to serve multiple purposes, to motivate, to teach, to affect behavioral changes in the salespeople, it should focus more on the activities that produce desirable results than on the results themselves. For example, contest points might better be based on the number of complete presentations made to qualified prospects than on the number of new accounts put on the books. One of the best things management can do for most salespeople is to force their analysis and accountability of time use. Most salespeople waste enormous amounts of time and are notoriously poor time managers. I like to see salespeople log and account for the use of their time in 15-minute increments. The result is an honest representation of how much of their time is actually being used to sell to produce results. Often, even a small improvement in a salesperson's productive time use can result in significant sales increases. Getting salespeople to effectively prospect for new business is often a big problem. Prospecting is hard work. It often involves a lot of refusal and rejection and can be very discouraging. If you can develop a company-managed lead development program to provide salespeople with pre-qualified prospective customer leads, that's the very best marketing strategy you could have. Consider space advertising, direct mail, telemarketing, exhibiting, or a combination of these methods to develop qualified leads for your sales force. But caution, if you do provide leads to salespeople, insist on reporting of results. Most companies would probably be shocked to learn how poor their follow-up on qualified leads actually is. 
I kept count last year at trade shows and by mailing in reply cards, I inquired about products or services to over 300 companies. Surprisingly, less than 30, less than 10% of these firms ever followed up with an in-person or telephone contact. The sad fact is that most companies do a better job of collecting prospects than they do of selling to them. Salespeople who are given prospects must be required to report back on the results obtained. And if you operate a lead collection and distribution program on a large scale, you need some method of randomly checking with the prospects directly to verify that your reps ever contacted them. If you are dispensing leads to independent reps, distributors, or franchisees, and cannot legally require accountability, then I advise you to sell, not give the leads, to the marketing people. Marketing through salespeople is necessary in certain businesses and desirable in many others, but it does require a great commitment to supervision and coaching. Now let's review the quick tips for improving the productivity of your sales organization. Number one, cut the truly poor performers. Don't prolong everybody's agony. Two, coach top performers to do even better if you're looking for the fastest results. Number three, provide the best possible combination of environment, example, and tools, but recognize that real motivation is self-motivation. You'll drive yourself crazy accepting full responsibility for other people's actions. Number four, focus on accountability. Accountability always improves performance. Number five, Help each salesperson gain an understanding of how he uses his time and work with him to create some improvement in the amount of time used productively each day. Even small improvements in time use can lead to big improvements in sales. Number six, consider a company-directed program of obtaining qualified prospects to furnish to your salespeople. Number seven, if you do distribute pre-qualified leads, demand reporting of results. I also caution companies against abdicating too much marketing responsibility to their sales force. I do not believe that it is necessary or advisable to sacrifice direct contact between company and customer in order to market through a sales force. The customer still needs some communication from the company and some opportunity to directly contact the company if dissatisfied in any way with answers, service, or information being provided by the salesperson. You might want to consider such ideas as a company-published newsletter or magazine sent to all customers, a toll-free customer problem hotline number given to customers, and warranty cards or forms filled out and sent in by customers to be certain that you obtain all customer names and addresses. These ideas are especially important for companies that sell at wholesale to independent distributors or franchisees. It's my opinion that Regardless of the marketing structure and distribution system that exists between the company and the customer, the company must have access to the customers, and the customers must have access to the company. This tape might be called, How to Be Your Own Consultant. Many times when I consult with a company, my recommendations are painfully obvious after the fact but were somehow invisible before my intervention. It's very tough to be objective and analytical about your own business. Very easy to be that way with someone else's. And that's the basis of consulting. However, there are certain suggestions I can make that may enable you to spot some great opportunities in your own business without the aid and expense of an outside independent consultant. Virtually every business has unexploited growth opportunities and unreasonable burdens. Most consultants who get involved with troubled companies find that each company has a product, a division, a type of customer, or a marketing method that is actually costing more than it's worth 
and should be cut. I find this to be true in most cases. You'll want to carefully analyze your own business and the costs associated with each different aspect of the business very carefully. Often you can apply the 80-20 idea to your business mix. You may discover that 80% of your profits come from 20% of your business and that 80% of your problems come from 20% of the business. Again, as long as it's not the same 20% in both cases, you're in good shape. The result of this type of analysis is often a comprehensive redesign of the business. It's difficult but advisable to be open-minded enough to do this. Another lesson learned from the turnarounds of troubled companies is that the opportunity for either a product breakthrough or a marketing method breakthrough exists in most businesses. The heart of many turnarounds is such a breakthrough. You might look for a new way to package your product or a new type of product or service that would appeal to your existing clientele. Or you might find an entirely new way to market a product or service you already have. Last year, an excellent company, the Sharper Image, seemed to reach its peak of profitable performance as a mail order company. For there to be continued growth, there would either have to be a product breakthrough, perhaps a whole new product line of interest to the company's customers, or a marketing breakthrough. The firm's president, Richard Thalheimer, chose the marketing route and has opened Sharper Image stores in several key cities. He also has the opportunity for a product breakthrough, and if he ever hears this cassette, I invite him to call me. I'll tell him about it. In our industry recently, the Nightingale Conan Corporation achieved a major breakthrough in their business that created dynamic growth for them by pioneering sort of a new type of audio cassette program product, tape albums based on best-selling books. Last year they had a hit with Megatrends, this year with Iacocca. In our business, we've created a marketing method breakthrough with a new sophisticated method of selling high-priced audio cassette courses. So far, this breakthrough is almost ten times the retail aspect of our business and promises to be responsible for a huge surge of growth during the rest of the year. You need to constantly think about each of the products or services you market, wondering whether there's another new market for them or another new way to market them. Avon Products is a company wrestling with interesting marketing strategy changes along these lines. Historically, of course, Avon Products have been sold by Avon Ladies. It's Avon Calling. But that approach has produced declining sales in recent years for several different reasons. With more women working in careers away from home, there hasn't been anybody there when Avon came calling. Also, with more and more better-paying career opportunities opening up to women, it has been tougher than ever to recruit and retain Avon representatives. Avon has taken several interesting approaches to these difficulties. For one thing, they've become a direct male marketer with their Avon Fashions catalog, capitalizing on their name, reputation, and undoubtedly customer names collected by their representatives Avon has become a successful mail-order merchandiser of women's fashions, bypassing their representative organization and selling direct to the consumer. And recently, they've admitted to working on methods that their representatives can use to sell Avon products to co-workers at the office rather than in their homes after hours. Today's Avon lady is likely to have a full-time career and only sell Avon products as an income supplement. Avon is also separately planning to again capitalize on its name and reputation by distributing an entirely different line of cosmetic products in retail stores. Another strategy that Avon should pursue, although I have no knowledge that they are, if they wish to continue marketing through a sales force, is to first greatly improve the income opportunity available to their representatives, and second, find a way to involve men as well as women in their business so that husband and wives can work together in a part-time Avon business. The first objective could be established by compensation changes and management overrides similar to multi-level companies like Amway and product line expansion 
possibly by acquisition. If I were managing Avon, I'd be thinking about buying a company like Tupperware or Shackley and combining both product lines and sales organizations. The second objective might also be accomplished by acquiring a company with products more conducive to marketing by men. Obviously, though, Avon's management is prudently thinking about and experimenting with various breakthrough possibilities to build a better business by redefining the business. And this is exactly the kind of thinking that is necessary to succeed in today's rapidly changing business environment. There is an excellent scene in a motivational film by Dr. Eden Ryle titled You Pack Your Own Shoot that illustrates the problem with most thinking and the way you have to think to succeed. Dr. Ryle draws a one and an X in the sand and challenges a friend to turn it into a six with one line. He tries several possibilities, putting a one behind the X. Finally, she draws an S in front, making the drawing into the word six. Her friend protests, saying that she indicated it had to be done with a line. But an S is nothing more than a curved line. It's just that we think of a line as being straight. We need to be able to step outside the confines of conventional, habitual thinking. A classic example of the problem, of course, is the railroad industry. They mistakenly thought they were in the railroad industry, instead of seeing themselves in the transportation industry. What business are you in? As your business grows and prospers, you'll probably redefine that business many times. McDonald's, for example, began as a hamburger stand. Today, among other things, McDonald's is a huge and powerful commercial real estate company, investing in building a property empire with franchisees' leases as funding. Continual, frequent rethinking of what your business is, should be, can be, and will be is a great success strategy. Regardless of the redefinition, though, the most important strategy of all is plain, simple excellence. The book, In Search of Excellence, has been very good for American business. It has caused many companies and business people to do better thinking about the quality of what they do and produce. As I travel this country, fly airlines, stay in hotels, rent cars, eat in restaurants, deal with many different vendors supplying the five different corporations I have interests in, I'm most often disappointed by the lack of excellence and the lack of concern for excellence apparent in most businesses, but thrilled by the occasional examples of real commitment to quality. Fortunately, the American consumer and the business client is, I think, growing gradually more demanding, and those firms that invest as much time, effort, and money in fostering quality in products and customer service as they do in advertising are going to see real dividends from their decisions. In my opinion, the way for a hotel chain to become number one is to cut their ad budget and invest in better people and more training for their front desk staffs. A car dealer could prosper by making their service departments better rather than getting a better ad agency. The excellence movement sparked by that book is a good, positive, productive, encouraging one. I think every business person should read In Search of Excellence, Passion for Excellence, and other books about quality and think of quality as a marketing strategy. One of the things you'll find discussed in these books and present in the companies they profile is what Peters and Waterman called a bias for action. I like to think of this as a sense of urgency. Many businesses and their people seem to move along as if time was not a factor. I've seen companies take months to make rather trivial decisions. And I think speed is a factor in business success. And the speed that a marketing idea makes it from impulse to implementation has a lot to do with that company's bottom line. One of Murphy's laws says that everything takes longer and costs more than originally projected, and I'm afraid that's true. But I believe it's the role of the leader of the business to push, push, and push some more to keep the elapsed time between impulse and implementation to the shortest possible number of minutes. I really believe in the time management concept that says work expands to fill the time available. 
and that principle will kill you if you aren't careful. It's the positive pressure of tight deadlines and high expectations that get and keep a business into high gear. We're going to talk now about profit management. And I want to immediately make the point that the main motivating reason to be in whatever business you're in should be profit. If it's not, you don't belong in business. Yet as a consultant, I find all sorts of people in all types of businesses who are not primarily profit motivated. They've got their priorities mixed up. Business decisions made with something other than profit as the prime consideration are almost certain to be bad decisions. One profit-related issue is pricing, and I find that most business people underprice their products and services. It's my experience that price either isn't or doesn't have to be a very important factor in a consumer's decision or the success of a business. Personally, in fact, I like to be positioned at the high end of a price scale and have competitors focused on selling from the perspective of being cheaper instead of being better. One of the most successful chiropractors I know is surrounded in his area by other doctors who charge $25 to $35 less per typical treatment, yet his practice is bigger and more successful than any three of his close competitors added together. In my experience, that's not an exception. That's a rule of business. Almost every time I consult with a business, one of the very first things we do is raise prices or fees. Sometimes the adjustment is pretty dramatic. In the speaking business, one speaker I consulted with had himself so far underpriced that we announced and implemented an immediate increase in his fees from $800 to $2,500 a day. He was in trauma, but although a few grumbled, he kept all of his existing clients and continued to add many more new ones. Price is the laziest and riskiest advantage to market with. Buying business with lower prices is relatively easy, but keeping business obtained purely because of price is difficult. One way that most businesses can immediately increase profits is by increasing their prices. Most underprice and wait too long to increase prices. A second source of profit improvement, directly linked to everything else we've discussed in this cassette series, is doing more business with each customer as opposed to obtaining lots of new customers. A lesson I've learned from the mail order business is that a buyer is a buyer is a buyer. It's infinitely easier and always more profitable to work at increasing the purchasing of your satisfied customers than it is to go out and add new ones. Everybody should read Russell Conwell's great book, Acres of Diamonds, at least once a month. This great story hammers home the point of finding opportunities right in your own backyard. Then the third source of profit improvement is cost control. It's so darned easy for costs to sneak up on you when you're not looking. I'm constantly catching some cost factor in our businesses that has sidestepped its controls and needs to be reevaluated. If you have the clout, a good policy to insist on and to contractually commit all your vendors to is advance written notice of any price increases. You should also take the time to check new bills against previous bills on a regular basis. Also, a set percentage of gross sales should be established for each cost category in your business freight, payroll, supplies, etc., and checked each month. If total costs exceed the set percentage, you've got a problem. I also like to find ways for businesses to make additional sales to existing customers with zero marketing cost. In the mail order business, this is quite easy to do. It's done with what's called a bounce back offer. That is a brochure making another offer packed in with the shipment of the ordered merchandise. This way, the sales literature piggybacks its way to the customer with the shipment. There's no postage, no advertising cost. Many mail order companies have developed very sophisticated, comprehensive bounce back marketing programs including the insertion of dozens of different offers in with each outbound shipment. If you don't ship merchandise, but you do send monthly statements, 
or send out invoices. The same idea applies. Or for the retail store, sales literature can be dropped into each bag carried out of the store by the customer. In a service business, the literature could be hand-delivered by the service provider. In some way, shape, or form, it makes good economic sense to combine the necessity of delivering the product or service with advertising for the next sale. Another source of profit improvement for most businesses can be found in improved collections. Many different types of businesses suffer greatly from accumulated past due account receivables. Personally, I have never let that problem develop in any of my businesses, even those that by their normal nature must give credit to get business. I firmly believe that the sale ain't made until you get paid. Effective marketing strategies can, to a great degree, prevent the buildup of unwieldy receivables. Discounts or premiums for advance or prop payments work extremely well. However, if you do have or ever develop a receivables problem, I urge you to take aggressive, speedy action to clean it up and get it back under control. Preserving rapport with a client or customer who can't or won't pay his bills is of little value. And left alone, collection problems tend to get worse, not better. In today's business environment, even large, long-established, well-respected corporations can and do find themselves in trouble, and then in bankruptcy. In that situation, you as a creditor could wait years for your money and then recover only a percentage of it. There are many vendors out there who never gave a second thought to extending credit to such firms as International Harvester or Continental Airlines, but they should have. Our companies are successful in getting Fortune 500 corporations, professionals, customers with long-standing relationships with us, as well as new customers, and even government agencies to pay in advance for their goods and services. Everybody tells me why it can't be done while we're doing it. I think one of the most important lessons that I've learned from restoring troubled businesses to health is that trends rarely reverse themselves. Trends don't change. People change trends. Waiting, procrastinating, delaying action on a problem or a negative situation is almost always an error. Problems don't seem to improve with age, nor do they go away on their own. The excellence idea, a bias for action, applies to negative as well as positive situations, to reactive as well as proactive behavior. When you get the first glimmer of something not right in your business, that's the time to look closer and to take corrective action. I think some business people spot the tip of a problem and choose to ignore it, feeling they've got enough to handle already. Why go looking for trouble? I'm told that in the Chinese language, the symbol for trouble and crisis is the same symbol used for opportunity. That shows incredible wisdom on their part. Most of the significant improvements in our businesses are byproducts of problems that reared their ugly heads, often at the worst possible times. In Think and Grow Rich, Napoleon Hill wrote, In every adversity lies the seed of an equal or greater opportunity. That's an idea that could help every business be more successful and every business person be more productive. It's a funny thing how closely related failure and success are and how failure is usually the womb of a subsequent success. Most business problems, incidentally, have marketing-related solutions. To be very simplistic, sales solves most problems. Less simplistically, but valid in my experience, is that the success of a business is closely related to how much time, energy, and money its leaders can direct to marketing versus how much is consumed by internal problems. You need not only a bias for action, but a bias for sales in your business. A bias for selling is a determination that the other aspects and responsibilities of running a business will not be permitted to get in the way of the sales and marketing process. Well, we're just about at the point that I like the least. 
when it's time to stop talking. I hope that the ideas and strategies presented in this cassette series prove as valuable to you as they have to me. Developing and implementing effective, successful marketing strategies is certainly one of the most enjoyable, exciting functions of business. It, by itself, won't guarantee the success of a business, but it certainly is a huge step in that direction. Not only do I hope these ideas presented in these cassettes are helpful to you, but I also hope I've succeeded in interesting you in further investigation and study of marketing strategies. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to one of our gold members-only podcasts. Make sure you upgrade and become a Diamond member and get access to the Diamond members-only podcast as well. On top of that, you will also get access to the whole enchilada with all of Dan's courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to Diamond now by going to diamondupgrade.com.